I really just needed to do something as um, I was inspired by um, seeing the, the, how I got started with cargo was uh, I really wanted, I had to do something small scale and I can't really get any more small scale than a guy in a room. And I was just, just going through one man films that I've been seeing and I was going to um, Arclight Hollywood, which I hope they're going to reopen, you know, and uh, for this famous, famous Cinerama Dome. And I was going to see a Tom, Tom Hardy movie. And I thought it was the last one that James Gandolfini did. And I forget what it was called, but uh, then I, I go into this um, movie called Lock. I say, oh, this is gonna be when James Gandolfini's got you know Tom Hardy. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, is this entire movie gonna take place in this SUV crossing the English countryside? And it didn't, it really worked. And I saw other films like um, uh, uh, All Is Lost with um, uh, Robert Redford and seeing, you know, um, uh, of course, um, uh, what's his gentleman's name? Um, uh, Ryan Reynolds in uh, Buried, you know, and then just, you know, there were uh, a friend of mine, JC Masick, he's a writer for a magazine uh, called popmatters.com, and there was an, he didn't write this article, but it was an article about the, um, uh, the uh, surge of the one-man film is like, you know, kind of the, you know, there's a whole like uh, genre for it, you know, listing on it on, you know, Wikipedia and everything, you know, it's just like a whole, just like people really getting to one man, you know, how difficult, it is, you know, it's it's simple. I like the idea because it was simple, but it's also having to keep, you know, you are just filming one man in a room, so just trying to keep it as, you know, interesting and dynamic as possible and keeping the camera, you know, moving. And I try to sort of make, you know, in cargo when we'd have like, you know, a uh, car chase or something like that, I would use camera movements to sort of like mimic what was going on, you know, uh, for the film and that sort of thing, you know, sort of like, you know, if you saw a car to car chase going on, you know, the car would sort of do like a, a loop, the camera would do sort of a loop to loop around the um, uh, the actor and that sort of thing. So basically just trying to do something as basic as possible, like I could get my mind around it, you know, because other things I'd written were like bigger in scale, but I'm thinking, how am I going to get all these extras together? It's one thing to write it and come up with a cool idea, but for me, it's just, you know, you know, one guy in a room, I can get my way around that with, you know, what I thought I wanted was a, um, uh, an authentic Tangerine Dream score. So I ended up just putting an ad just on Craigslist saying, you know, I want to get uh, some composer who will get me a authentic Tangerine Dream score. And uh, someone saw this on a, uh, I don't know, a, uh, and posted it on a, uh, a message board. And then I got a number, about 50 emails. And one from was uh, the front man and the new front man of Tangerine Dream, Thorsten Quistian in Berlin, Germany. You know, a guy in Berlin reached out to a guy in Los Angeles. And I'm thinking, you know, this this has got to be a joke. This can't be. And I wasn't actually going to answer it. I was going to go with another composer. But like, for some reason, eight months later, I went back and I did a double take and I kind of had to look his name up because he didn't send any samples of his work. I just thought it was, he's, this person is not really being serious about wanting to answer this ad. I said to include some samples of the work. I figured, well, I'm in Tangerine Dream. You don't have to see any samples of my work. You know who I am. So basically he was uh, the late, great Edgar Froese's um, uh, right-hand man, his protege. And I think the, the something I read that uh, Thorsten said that the his audition for um, uh, Tangerine Dream was just playing one one note, you know, said, uh, Edgar Froese said, okay, go over to that piano there and just play this one note endlessly. I just want to hear you just get it right, like, like I don't know, a C note, a D note, and you just play that endlessly for se several minutes, just, you know, and he basically, you know, taught him everything. So, you know, was, uh, I'm sad that, you know, uh, Edgar didn't wasn't still with us for obvious reasons, but it would have been great for him to actually, you know, have heard the um, uh, actual uh, Cargo soundtrack. Cargo inspired me to maybe want to try, you know, more 
one-man films, my producer, J.C. Masick, said, I maybe want to hold off on that, but I thought maybe after a one-man film, I wanted to do what they call a two-hander, which is like, you know, like two-character uh, film, basically. Something like uh, James Conn film, Misery, which has more than two characters, but it's basically a, a chess match between, you know, these two characters, you know, in this um, room. But it basically made me think, you know, of, I, I like the idea of... Um, uh, I'm a minimalist, so I like minimalist filmmaking. So that's, you know, like how you can, you know, get, you know, and Tarantino actually with uh, The Hateful Eight, that was in Reservoir Dogs. Those are kind of minimalist films in a way, you know, just like one. I thought that was interesting with um, The Hateful Eight, how Tarantino shot it in, uh, I believe, in 70 millimeter and the whole thing basically, you know, there's a few like beautiful landscapes, but, you know, basically the whole thing takes place, you know, in the, um, uh, uh, the hate in, inside the, um, uh, the, the mini haberdashery for the entire, most of the length of the film. So it kind of like, you know, it seemed like shooting on 70 millimeter when you're just shooting a room, it still worked brilliantly. It's still great. But I thought that it was, you know, it kind of like, uh, I think Tarantino probably inspired, well, he obviously inspired a lot of filmmakers, you know, myself included for, um, uh, just what you could pull off, you know, and when he was just going to originally shoot Reservoir Dogs, you know, 16 millimeter with just his friends and stuff like that. And then actually a friend of his, a producer friend, managed to get financing. So, yeah, it's, I'd say there's some, uh, you know, it's inspired me to look into look into more minimalist filmmaking, what you can do with less instead of just like having a lot of bells and whistles, you know. Or going back to um, uh, another one-man film I admire a lot is um, uh, Sam Raimi's um, uh, uh, Evil Dead Part Two. You know, I mean, it's just like a crazy wild ride, you know, and just then I remember the first time I watched that, you know, I'm, I'm a big Bruce Campbell fan. I actually went to see him live at a um, uh, uh, something called Last Contestant Standing. He had it at the uh, world famous Troubadour and um, uh, where um, uh, he had just like this, you know, game, this traveling game show that he was a part of. And I remember first time seeing him in this film, Evil Dead 2, and not thinking, who is this idiot with this weird shin? It's like not liking this guy. This is going to be a terrible film. But then it took off like, you know, five minutes later. And I think it's probably one of the most brilliant, you know, um, uh, one, it's not technically a one-man film, but I consider it kind of a one-man film. It was like, you know, that and uh, Charlton Heston, The Omega Man, or, you know, I Am Legend, the remake, those kind of, I consider one-man film, even though there aren't, you know, there's more than one actor in the film. So, yeah. Cargo was a lot of work. I'm glad we got it made, but mostly I'm really proud of the, um, uh, we had an official pro published um, uh, uh, novelization by um, our producer, JC. You know, I keep hoping mind won't mind me mentioning him endlessly. Published by uh, Bloodhound Books and uh, out of Cambridge, England. And basically when this film, uh, Cargo, one of the big things I figured that music was going to have to be like a character onto itself. So it needed a very strong score. So I wanted, you know, ideally my dream was to get a, a Tangerine Dream type score and um, uh, I'm so thrilled that we actually did got that got that so I'm, I'm you know I'm proud of the film proud of the novel but I'm probably most proud of uh, the the soundtrack that we got you know because it just you know uh, years ago I seemed to would go you know when I was you know younger I'd go to movies and it seemed like every other film I'd go to see would have this tangerine dream score like who is this band tangerine dream you know, I mean, you know, Legend, you know, uh, Firestarter, you know, um, uh, G, well, most people probably know them now from the soundtrack from Grand Theft Auto V, you know, A Thief with James Caan. So it's just like this really, or one of Tarantino's favorite films, Sorcerer with Roy Scheider and the uh, late, great um, uh, Joe Spinell, one of my favorite character actors, you know, a Sorcerer. So William Friedkin's uh, first film. that and, we, and that was the first film scored by Tangerine Dream. And I, and I think they'd actually didn't see the film when they scored it. They just came up with 
an hour of music, 34 minutes of music, and they just sent it to William Friedkin, and he just like, you know, edited it in, and it worked, you know, brilliantly. So that's one of the things, you know, I'm proudest of. Other times I've, you know, just worked with like local composers on short films and stuff, but to have really a professional composer, you know, uh, willing to work on this truly independent film was, you know, a nice feather in the cap. Yeah, I started writing first because I read somewhere that can be a way to, if you write your own script, that can be a way to get into a directing gig, you know, like, I think what's what uh, Walter Hill did when he started in uh, um, some, Hobbs and something or other, uh, he did with a uh, film with uh, Robert Culp and uh, Bill Cosby, I believe, before Bill lost his mind, um, that's basically, he started off from um, uh, Hickey and Boggs, that was it, Hickey and Boggs, then, then, yeah, but I started writing because that seemed like, you know, the easiest thing to tackle, it's just you in a room, you in the computer, and just, you know, you don't really need a lot of, you know, crew or anything else like that, it's just you in the computer, so it's, the, the writing was definitely where I started first. The thing I'm thinking about, oh yeah, I'm thinking about a lot of new projects, you know, I've, and, uh, I've uh, shared them with them, a bunch of friends, you know, the one I've, I've wanted to do, but um, uh, called uh, interesting film called uh, "I Raise the Dead" about a um, uh, uh, guy named Octavius Flynn, who uh, a bunch of it would be. I've been a lot of people don't like the found footage genre. I like it a lot. It's one of my favorites, and I've been wanting to do a found footage on film and a zombie film, just trying to. But there's so many of those, so it's hard to find a new take on it. So it's kind of like combination of the zombie and the found footage uh, genre, just about a uh, four documentary filmmakers who. Um, uh, hear about this urban legend about a man who can uh, bring people back from the recently deceased, you know, but the thing about it is, is when he does it, it's kind of a crapshoot. They can come back sort of very, you know, can either not work, they can come back as sort of like, you know, quivering invalids, or they can come back as very dangerous and violent, like 28, like, you know, days later type style, or just they come back just fine. So it's just they, this crazy gun-tooting guy who, um, uh, that's project, you know, kind of a dream project I've been working on. Another one I was working on, I only got, come on, my problem is, is that a lot of people, they write and they write and they write and they have to cut back. When I write things, I usually get like 10, 20 pages in and then I get stuck and then I just hit a brick wall. So it's not having enough material. I can come up with some good scenes, but I've got a number of scripts that I just haven't been able to finish because I just, you know, hit a brick wall. Um, uh, one that I called uh, Six Guns and Sorcery was basically what I call it, The Hateful Eight Meets Dungeons and Dragons, about six, uh, about a post-apocalyptic era where um, uh, there's a combination of, you know, technology, like with these guys called pistoleros and they all walk around with, even though the, and there's, you know, uh, basically encounters, you know, it's a world of, you know, of, um, uh, sort of a Lord of the Rings type uh, world meets, you know, um, uh, a weird Western, like the Wild Wild West TV show, something of that nature, you know, but uh, something like that. Uh, and um, uh, another one I had that I, another dream project I haven't written in a long time is one called uh, Blind Man with a Shotgun. It's about a, um, uh, basically a blind gunman, a blind shooter who bat who battles a forest full of invisible monsters. So basically how I would shoot the invisible monsters, you wouldn't really see them except for, if you remember the film, The Predator. And uh, you see like that kind of, the, you know, you don't see the predator for like the first hour, which is a great way for building up suspense, you know, and saying uh, Spielberg did the same thing for Jaws, said, I don't want to see the shark for the first hour. Basically, you just see like from the point of view of the predator. And so that's kind of like uh, the way you would see the, 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 these wolf-like creatures and sort of like shooting like the 
the force in um, uh, Evil Dead 2 that, that comes from the woods, just the point of view of the camera streaming around. So, And the blind man is walking through the forest, and he's just walking with his walking stick, and obviously he's blind, and he just walks on this. I have this idea for an interesting shot. He's walking down this like path, and then you see... He doesn't see it, obviously, but there's there's a bone here, there's a skull there, and he cracks on a steps on a skull, and he figures it's just to leave, and he goes to this, and he takes his clothes off, and he gets in this, um, uh, goes for like a skinny dip, and it's very peaceful, but he doesn't see that there's bones littering all in this, you know, and uh, this uh, place with this um, where he's just skinny dipping, and you know he doesn't know that they're watching him. So basically, he turns out to be like you know kind of a master gunman, and in the bones he finds. Uh, it's a ridiculous weapon. They used it in one of Stallone's films, a um, uh, automatic shotgun, and uh, I thought it's it's ridiculous thing, steroid-like weapon. But just him trapped in the cabin, you know, trying to figure out he's uh, how he's going to get his way out. And he figures what he'll do is he'll just uh, since he can't get out, he'll just slowly but surely wipe out all of the monsters, you know, and just you know, and just he's minds to find his cabin and just you know has supplies until he just figures he can just like slowly but surely wear them down. So that's about it. As far as I got, so but um, uh, yeah, something like that. But projects like that are ones I've f- put a lot of thought about into. But um, it's just problems. It's just like getting funding together and um, uh, getting uh, you know getting motivated to do it, you know, and that sort of thing. Getting the crew together. So it's just like a lot of things I would like to do, but it's just not. It's just a lack of resources. That's why a lot of projects I've done haven't come to fruition. So did a couple of short films uh, before that, and. Um, uh, um, just you know basically just a couple of short films but I just this is something I just was writing about for a while and I just figured that would be a good way to get started on for a feature just like a, a one-man film you know and that would be you know basically something this is I can something like I'm always thinking I've got to think get something I can get my head around it's basically it doesn't get more basic and you know than just you know one man trapped in a room and the, the one-man film you know uh, it had been done before but I think we put a you know a different twist on it I just put it on my credit card, to be honest. Yeah, so it's just funding for myself. So you know, let's 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 to worry about. It. It's like, oh, can we afford this? You know, the the biggest problem for the was um, I'm thinking, where, where am I going to get a cargo container? So I would just I put in a couple of ads, and I figured. Um, uh, they found I found a local company that rents them out, but I, w- I was just hoping that I could just have you know a friend that would have one you know in their backyard or something like that. So I put you know more ads on Craigslist that couldn't find anyone. Basically, ended up uh, just renting one, and we put it out front of my um, uh, uh, cinematographer's front yard, uh, Chris Gosh, out in Inglewood, uh, when his new house he just moved into. And we get inside, and we open it up, and the inside of the cargo container is immaculate. It's a, it looks brand new. It's just like a blinding bright white light. And my cinematographer gets in there, and he's looking around. He's just shaking his head. He's like, Mm-mm, no. And he's like, what? I'm like, what? What's the problem? He's like, all this white light, you know, look, if we close this door, we're not, he just, he just said, you know, we're not going to be able to see this bright white. So I said, well, what can we do, you know? And I was just happy we got the container. He says, well, we paint it. I think we can't paint a rented container. He says, sure you can, you paint it. He says, these things get pretty banged up anyways. Well, he's probably right. So, you know, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. So we just went down to the hardware store and the crew just got a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, uh, spray paint. They just spent the whole day spray painting it till it looked like, made it look like kind of like a very, it was kind of guerrilla filmmaking, very, very, made it look very spooky and, you know, and it, it helped a lot. So, you know, one rather pissy, uh, 
reviewer said something like he, he 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 didn't like the film, which is fine, but he called it a poorly painted car container. Well, what? Who is gonna? You know, I, I, I'm watching Mission Impossible the other day, and there's a scene where you know uh, Tom Cruise gets a. Um, uh, a ski mask put over his head. I mean, you watch the film, it's obviously just like all cheap and threaded. Like some gangsters are not going to, okay, it's Tom Cruise. We've got to get some pristine leather thing to throw over his head. No, I mean, it's, a gangster is just going to throw somebody in there. You know, it's just they're going to, they're torturing somebody. So I didn't really get what that guy was going on about. The one I was talking about, I Raise the Dead, that's the one that I put a lot of work into and I just put on the back burner. And then I thought I've, I, I, just thought it was too big in scale, so that's what the idea of cargo came around. I was working for a cargo shipper con com container shipper company, and I just was walking around inside one time thinking, yeah, it might be kind of interesting to just be trapped in there and to move the camera around to mimic what we're seeing on screen when we, you know, see a car chase, move the car, the camera, like moving a... Um, uh, Cars they move them. There's a scene where a car, where a truck, where you you can hear the car, a car like roll. We've seen that a million times, you know. But you know, I figured, okay, we'll just do a 360 with the camera, sort of, you know, sort of like you know, mimic the uh, crashing of the the car tumbling with what's going on screen. Some uh, uh, and some other reviewers like uh, they didn't care for that either. But uh, you know, it's it's just, you know, it's just something different. I don't think it's you know something that's been done to death already, or maybe you know, I maybe might have been the first to do it. Who knows, you know? But uh, yeah, maybe, maybe half a million, maybe a hundred thousand, maybe if you really cut strings, I don't know, you know, I don't have an exact breakdown of the budget, but it just, it was just like so many, you know, for a Hollywood film, it would be, you know, nothing, but if I had like, you know, half a million, 200, I'm thinking it'd have to be in the six figures at least for something like that, for uh, I Raise the Dead to um, uh, come to fruition, so yeah. Other than crowdfunding, I, I really don't see how it is, you know. I'm, that, that's basically why I funded my first film myself because I've tried crowdfunding. That's the one thing about the, the film industry that, that baffles me is just, you know, the, the, the raising of money. I, um, a filmmaker friend I talked to a couple years ago, I said, you've made a number of films, more films than I've had, and um, uh, can you just briefly tell me how you managed to raise the money? And he just, he's a nice guy, but he just wrote back in his email, signed very was like, oh, I hate raising, the process of raising money. It's very difficult raising money out there right now. It's harder to raise 100,000 now than a million. This is a couple of years ago, but um, this is pr prior to crowdfunding. But a lot of people have, um, uh, I know a number of, um, uh, a couple of, you know, filmmakers who are always reading about somebody who's got, you know, uh, who had a, a success with their crowdfunding. And I've only been, you know, I've only raised a couple hundred dollars of that, you know, so, but uh, that uh, might be something to try in the future. I think trying crowdfunding. Yeah, I think that that can be a way. There was uh, one film with, um, oh God, what is this film? I read it on, on Harry Knowles' site back before he was, he went crazy um, and got canceled. That, yeah, there was a film with um, uh, Clive Owen. I forgot, I forget, I think, um, Shoot Him Up. That was it, yeah. Shoot Him Up. That, I think, started off with, uh, that's how they got funding. I think by the director just putting together some sketches or something like that and just like animating them and see, this is how it's going to look. And they managed to get the funding and got Clive Owen. The film turned out to be, you know, pretty cool. But, you know, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen, heard about stories about other people who have like, you know, uh, made short films, you know, and uh, used that. You know, it was like, that's how the Coen brothers actually uh, got their first film, uh, Finance Blood Simple. They um, uh, worked with Bruce Campbell saying that um, uh, they um, uh, put together just, they said, they showed it to distributors in theaters, say, okay, it's going to be just like this except 90 minutes long. So they just showed them all this wild, crazy stuff. And that's actually how they kind of got uh, 
the first uh, Evil Dead film uh, finance too. They did a, they just put together Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. They just put together this really gross uh, seven minute you know horror film and showed it to doctors and dentists you know and these dogs and, and Bruce Campbell made me saying on one an episode of um, uh, Dinner for Five he just turned to the camera and says get money from dentists get money they're loaded with dough dentists and then somebody who financed um. Uh, Evil Dead says, you know, well, every year I go to the some dense, I go to Vegas and spend ten grand in Vegas. Well, here's my Vegas money. So, and the guy has since made back three times of, you know, according to Bruce Campbell, what he made. So, yeah. So those, that's, uh, I've, I'm not sure if I've tried that myself. You know, I've tried. I did actually try for my uh, short film called Guillotine Guys. I did try to um, uh, uh, make, you know, see if I could get that financing, but we were only to be able to raise, just using the short film on a uh, Indiegogo campaign, trying to uh, raise money for that, but you only raised a few hundred bucks, unfortunately, so. Yeah, I've collaborated with my, um, uh, with uh, J.C. Masick, my uh, producer on Cargo, but usually I, you know, I, I feel like I have to like, you know, uh, work alone, you know, because I can't really trust anybody's voice except my own. Usually, you know, I've, I've talked to other directors. This director who made uh, one really great film. Uh, his name is, I believe, is uh, he's Canadian director, French Canadian, Maurice Devereaux. I think is how you pronounce his name. He'd made a film called End of the Line. It's a brilliant horror film about crazy people, you know, a, a religious cult that takes over a subway in, somewhere in Canada. And um, uh, we're friends now on Facebook, and I actually offered him if I could somehow put the money together for something, would you be interested in directing? And he's like, no, no, I just, he, he really just kind of like, I don't know if he's really soured on the business. I guess he's just making, you know, doing video production, that kind of stuff, you know, right now. But, um, uh, you know, if I could, if somebody as talented as him, if I could collaborate with somebody like him, but usually I have to, I find myself just uh, not collaborating with people. You know, I'm uh, pretty much of a weird incel loner in real life. So I pretty much have to like, you know, uh, come with it, come up with it, all of it on my own. When I'm hitting a wall creatively, it just seems like I just have to wait it out and wait it out. And sometimes, if I hit a wall creatively on something, I it will I will go I can go for weeks and weeks and months and you know, and it's just at a certain point it's just not happening. You know, when I hit a wall, so I basically when I hit a wall creatively with something, I figure I just have to abandon it and you know and do something else with it or, or I've been trying to maybe work with a co-writer now, my friend uh, JC, um, on uh, some other found footage ideas that I had, you know, but um, um, basically, you know, um, when I hit a wall, I hit it and, you know, I have to go on to something else. I usually, not very often that I come back to something that, um, uh, that uh, just, you know, gain digital dust, so to speak, you know, on my computer. No. Never, I've never directed anybody else's material. I would like to, but uh, I really haven't had that uh, opportunity yet. You know, I'm really, I'm really just much too antisocial, I think. So, you know, I have to, that's why I have to like come up with my own stuff, you know, since nobody else is going to do it for me. So, pretty, who, anybody be open to, you know, pretty much anybody be open to directing a script by, you know, if they had trusted me. I've, I've applied for a few jobs, but, um, uh, you know, nothing really. Um, uh, came about of it, you know, but, uh, you know, but sure, I mean, everybody's got their dream, you know, I'd be willing to just, you know, um, there's a guy named, uh, I wish I had his career, so just, he's not one of, I would say, he's a talented filmmaker, so Jesse V. Johnson, I thought he was an American uh, filmmaker, but he's very prolific, you know, independent filmmaker, and um, he's, you know, done a lot of action films, you know, and he did had an interesting film called out, sort of like, looks kind of a, uh, uh, Hell hath no fury about a woman uh, trapped behind line, woman soldier trapped behind lines of being during World War II. It's got a very much uh, inglorious bastards feel to it. You know, if he would um, uh, 
be ever be interested in, you know, and uh, working on something, you know, I mean, I don't know him that well, but she's somebody that, you know, is still, who's working full time as a filmmaker, but still got his foot in that indie world. So, you know, maybe a collaboration with something like that. I mean, like, I don't know the gentleman, you know, but someone of that nature who's, you know, still accessible, you know, I mean, sure, sure, anybody would want to work with an A-lister, you know, film filmmaker, but just somebody who's got, you know, who's a working filmmaker and has still got his film in the indie world, you know, uh, definitely I would be interested in working with. Probably horror, maybe action, you know, but um, uh, it could be, you know, anything, you know, a uh, friend of mine, you know, I came, came up with an idea, of, uh, I like the title, it's called Suicide Forest. And the idea was just about uh, somebody um, uh, who placed an ad online for a thousand dollars to help them commit suicide, you know, and they're terminally ill and something like that. And I figured, and they go to this, you know, they go to the suicide forest. It becomes like, a, you know, it's obviously, uh, you know, it all goes haywire and like kind of a, turns into a horror film. But my friend was saying, you know, well, I don't know, something like that. Maybe you should go for like, you know, Green Book or something like that. Something's just like more of a, um, uh, of a, a dramatic film that could be more like Oscar bait, you know, I mean, I think if you make, you know, something, well, I didn't really think of that, making it into like a, a dramatic type thing sometime, you know, always of the mind, you know, the way to break into, one of the best ways to break into, um, uh, take the next step or to break into the quote unquote big leagues or get into the, you know, um, uh, bigger, uh, jobs and films is to start with the horror, you know, genre, like a lot of, you know, because you look at something like, it's not the greatest film, the Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity, you know, okay films for what they were, but, you know, but, uh, you know, no big, that's the great thing about horror is that, you know, if you've got the right concept, you don't really need any big stars, you know, audiences will come check it out, you know, you know, uh, if it's a intriguing enough concept. Yeah, I thought about that for doing something on a smaller scale for like on YouTube and things of that nature, you know, but um, uh, I think with, um, uh, you know, I've, um, there, there was some gentleman who did a film, you know, um, uh, the something, the incredibly slow murderer or something like that. And it's what, basically it's about a guy who murders people with a spoon by, by trying, it's just basically this crazy guy with a white guy, like a kabuki white you know painted face hitting guy over the head with a spoon and just following him endlessly around different landscapes just you know hitting him over and over again it's a hilarious film but he put that up he i think he had a number of distribution offers and uh, he just ended up putting it up on uh, youtube and getting like 10 million views and i guess he made a nice piece of change from that so i thought of something like that but it's just like I put a few things up on YouTube and, you know, and basically I had to sort of like shamelessly promote it on message boards, which is, you know, what I guess is and as akin to spamming, but, you know, trying to get somebody to view it or just trying to like, you know, whenever I make a film, I try and reach out to, you know, com or any, you know, filmmaking website, big or small, just to get that, uh, you know, because it's just difficult for small films to get that, you know, the word out, you know, but, you know, but uh, with, uh, with the internet today, it makes it a little easier. I make films, you know, when I, at a very, very young age, you know, and I'm uh, just seeing, you know, everything from like Coen Brothers films, David Lynch films, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, Films by a director named Hal Hartley did a great film called Trust, you know, great Sergio Leone, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, just, you know, all these different, you know, genres of films, figuring, you know, and just seeing the audience's reaction. I mean, years ago, I would play, uh, 
just I, I would just kind of get you know interested and get off on you know the audience really getting into a movie no matter what genre it is whether it be action or horror or drama or comedy there's really nothing quite like that to see a film that's really just a solid three star film you know there's nothing just you know a four star film there's nothing really quite like the feeling of you know seeing a great piece of work like that nothing really nothing really you know I mean uh, that was pretty much film was pretty much you know my only passion that I could really want to pursue and I thought about. Maybe a second, distant second would be, I thought it would be good to be a stand-up comedy. I've tried stand-up comedy like three or four times. And uh, recently, during, I, I, tried it again, I tried it again recently, and I just think I work really hard on my material. And maybe after like trying it for the fourth time, I'll finally you know, be a natural. Now the, you know, the comedy clubs are opening up again, but it just didn't really work out two films. But you know, I got like a, f a couple of fist bumps from the, com from the comedians. They were very supportive. So they're, you know, these guys, you can, you know, at least in my experience, the comedians, you know, they've got each other's back, you know, I mean, from, uh, so that maybe something else, because that's really, Stand-up comedy is really a very pure art form. All you just need is you and a mic, you know, and just like, and I'm actually kind of amazed that it's something that still people still go to see, just to see someone, you know, tell stories into a microphone, you know, in this day and age of, you know, when you, uh, blockbuster movies and video games and things like that, that that still is something that appeals to people as stand-up comedy. I just, you know, putting, you know, ads online, you know, just with the, you know, and, uh, some of the acting sites, you know, and just basically just, I say, send somebody to send me, just send me a few clips of your, um, uh, of your, uh, your, of your, um, uh, your work so I can just get a feel for what you, um, uh, are, are capable of, you know, so it just makes things very easy. You don't really usually, I, you don't really have to do, I, unless it's a really important role, I like to do audition, but usually with supporting roles, I can feel pretty confident, especially with cargo when I just uh, would, uh, um, you know, uh, nominate somebody, not nominate somebody, uh, choose somebody for a role, just, you know, going by their, their, um, uh, for supporting roles, just for like, you know, just seeing their reel. How I came to work with Ron Thompson is like years ago, I was uh, a fan of this cult film from 1981 called American Pop. And it had this, um, uh, guy in this bleach blonde hair it was a rotoscope film. That's where they, a technique where they, um, uh, they use it now with computers like CGI. But uh, back then, this is a Ralph Bakshi film, what they did back then in 1980, this was the state of the art, where they um, uh, would just they'd film the uh, actors in black and white uh, and then, then tra hand trace everything, you know, frame by frame, 24 frames per second. And Ron was just, you know, had this character named Pete, this rock and roll character, you know. There was a specific time I write. I usually find I'm right. I stuff to, I have to get up and write in the morning or during the day. And usually that I just, you know, and sometimes I'll just sit at the, you know, at the computer for like seven, eight hours. And then I'm wondering, why am I getting so tired? Well, because you've been sitting here writing seven, eight hours. You, you idiot. You've been sitting here writing for seven, eight hours, you fool. So, you know, of course you're tired. So basically I find myself writing, you know, in the morning, you know, and sometimes I can go like, you know, weeks without writing anything. And then I'll just, I can write like, you know, uh, really pound something out pretty quickly, you know, but it just, it's just, usually I'm right, find myself writing in the morning or, or midday afternoons. I don't, for some reason, I, I, I used to get, you know, dreamings, but, you know, some, usually my problem with what I dream is like, you know, I would have to usually immediately write the information down if I get up and walk, you know, out of bed and walk away or something like that and go do something else, then it's gone, you know. I, I mean, it could have been having a really vivid nightmare, but I don't think, you know, there's, I've, I've heard about songwriters and, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm like, and, um, uh, 
filmmakers. I'm, I'm guessing probably David Lynch is very influenced by his dreams, you know, in his filmmaking, but not so much, you know, you know, usually I would have to keep a journal by the bed and just like jot it all down immediately to retain the information because usually it's just like gone once I wake up. But I do like when directors do that, you know, Scorsese, his films are basically like one big, you know, like series of pop songs, you know, Tarantino's are a lot like that. You know, um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, he had a funny scene with um, uh, Roller Girl when uh, they had a scene with, he has a scene with uh, Mark Wahlberg. She has a scene with Mark Wahlberg and uh, she's wearing a roller skates, Roller Girl. And you hear the song, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. So that's a great way to, I think, that's the idea way of using a song, of pairing the image with the lyrics of the song. So, yeah. Favorite director of all time, maybe, this is probably a bit of a bit cliche, um, uh, uh, Kubrick, probably, pretty much, you know what I mean? But just, just seeing, when I remember seeing The Shining for the first time, Clockwork Orange, you know, Barry Lyndon, 2001, just seeing this, just seeing his visual style is, you know, absolutely amazing, you know, the, the only, and, and the, the only, we, we actually did use a couple of like, uh, the Kubrick, um, what was that shot we used in, uh, for Cargo, the, um, uh, one point perspective, you know, just like, you know, it's just, it's just a beautiful shot and you can do it really simply. And I thought, you know, was, I, try, I try to put that in there for a number of shots. I wanted to do a couple of shots I didn't get for cargo since it's just, I wanted to get one, a shot where I wouldn't retrospect, I would have wanted to get a shot maybe of the actor when he's pacing the cargo, the camera actually, you know, turns upside down for a certain shot or maybe, you know, I wanted to get probably a little more coverage than I got, but other favorite filmmakers, definitely, you know, Sergio Leone, you know, um, uh, David Lynch, you know, I mean, George Lucas, the, the George Lucas before the, um, uh, the Jar Jar Binks era, you know, of Star Wars, you know, I mean, the, his first few films, you know, THX 1138, you know, American Graffiti, the original Star Wars, A New Hope, those, you know, that's when he was just really, a really, you know, a hungry, you know, uh, great filmmaker. So those first, you know, three films, early films of his, you know, he's still a talented director, but I think if he, maybe if he sees one of those guys, I think he'd get back to his roots. You know, I mean, I remember when, uh, love David Lynch, but when he, um, uh, or, uh, and I love, uh, Hal Hartley, but when Hal Hartley switched to, um, uh, digital filmmaking, I didn't really think, you know, it doesn't matter now because the film, digital, he was using one of the primitive digital filmmakers for this film he did called, uh, the, I believe it's called The Girl from Monday. And it, the whole entire film is shot with a motion blur. And I basically had to turn it off like 10 minutes into it because I couldn't watch it. Because I, I, sometimes, you know, Hal Hartley is great, but sometimes I think he's trying to alienate his audience. He did another film. I think Jeff Goldblum had a part in it. It was a film called Faye Grimm. It's his sequel to his uh, popular film. It was called Henry Fool. And pretty much 99% of the shots, it's all tilted at a Dutch angle. Every shot in the film. And, I, and it's just like, it started to remind me of John Travolta in this um, uh film Battlefield Earth where that's also you know which is not a very good film you know but uh, but but every single shot in that film where a director just completely overusing a Dutch angle you know in every shot it just it just you know it, it, I just I just can't take it so you know sometimes uh, you know shooting something in a motion blur you know Dutch angle so things like that I think you know when directors are trying to do something different like that it just doesn't really work you know and uh it's like why well, I can't watch I like the first born identity film but the I don't you know Paul Greengrass is a talented director you know but um it just he, he it's just like shaky cam I can handle up to a point but where you I actually want to see if I'm especially if I'm watching an action film I want to be able to see the action it's just like some of those born movies I just you know I, I just you know it hasn't made a difference to anybody else apparently because they're you know 
big hits, but it's just like, you know, Steven Spielberg and the Coen brothers, of course, I remember seeing uh, their first film, Raising Arizona. And it was just a brilliant, you know, I mean, this is it's just, or um, uh, you just see how you can, somebody with really, the Coens are really a great visual, just that amazing Steadicam work. And then I went back and finally saw their first film, Blood Simple. And it was just, you know, all these crazy camera movements where they draw attention to themselves. And they're just like, you know, there's a scene of a man sitting at a bar and the camera just comes up and literally goes up and over the man and keeps drifting past him. Just, just you know, great stuff like that. And, you know, I'm just sitting there watching, so, okay, that's how you do it. And in some ways, it was depressing in a way too. Thinking, okay, this is what I have to live up to. I can't live up to this, you know, style of filmmaking. But you know, everybody's different. Not everybody can obviously be the Coens. But you know, just seeing all those different types of films and what really wanted me and inspired me to uh, make my own films. Certain actors I've won for certain roles, sure, you know. But um, uh, sometimes, by being in the indie budget world, your worlds, your your, your um, uh, choices are kind of more limited. But when I worked with. Uh, Elliot, who I wanted to get the voice of the kidnapper, there was this actor, I forget, I sent Elliot, I tell Michael, I think he was, he did the, he played the villain in, uh, he was in one of the Alien movies, Alien Resurrection. You'd recognize his voice, um, um, Michael Wincott, or I think it's Michael Wincott, but he had this very kind of like, this very like gravelly voice, and that's the kind of voice I wanted for, you know, and and, and uh, Elliot managed to send in his, his reel, and I was going to go with another guy, but then I went back, and then I just saw uh, this uh, interesting uh, short film that Elliot did where he played like a uh, tough-talking private eye with a fedora and all that, and, uh, and uh, he said, man, that's really a great little short film. Can you maybe, you know, send me the, the whole film? And says, yeah, well, it's not really a short film. It's an advertisement for a lighting fixture. So, so basically, he got, you know, hired because he did uh, a great voiceover as a private eye for a lighting fixture. So was, I think it was just somebody for somebody's, a director's reel, probably just trying to get a, a, a job for a commercial for this lighting fixture. But, you know, whatever works. Yeah, the universe can really play tricks on you, like that synchronicity, you know, things you probably wouldn't have thought of, you know, just, you know, happen on the fly, you know, but um, you can maybe, some things just like certain things are pretty accident. I mean, in a lot of like, you know, certain, you know, classic moments in films, like I think, uh, What's his name? Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy. That scene where the car stop, the cab stops right in front of him, just skids to a stop, and he pounces and says, "I'm walking here. I'm walking here." I guess you can see Dustin Hoffman's reaction because that cab just stopped right there. He would have hit him and not. It could have killed him, you know. But they, but he just like they just went with that camera from, uh, you know, with that that great line. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. But you know, you never know when you can be just rolling the camera and catch something like that. You know, so you just you know gotta keep your eyes open for those sort of things. Sometimes I've, I've, I've made the mistake of giving, I was working with this actress on an early film one time and I just said, I said, you know, I, was, I had Hal Hartley's film Trust in my mind, that scene and just thinking, no, do less, 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 you know, and she was just like, getting very stilted and she said and I just I said well how did you see when you wrote it and she, when when I read when you read it and she said well I just saw the character just sort of playful I said fine I just said let you do it you kind of have to trust in your actor and just let them uh, kind of like just you know uh, go with it give it you can give you know uh, that's the thing that Ron Thompson was talking about working with Ralph Bakshi that he just lets the actor do what they want to do you know and um, uh, the uh, merchant I think uh, James Merchant Ivory films James Ivory I think what's uh, 
Anthony Hopkins talking on uh, Inside the Actor Studio that, you know, he's this great director, but he just lets the actor, you know, do it, doesn't give them a lot of direction. Woody Allen really doesn't give a lot of direction, you know, it just says, just, you know, um, uh, has real faith in the actors, he says, so everybody's, you know, different. I think, I mean, Tarantino, I think he likes actors to come in knowing his, their scripts, his scripts word for word, everything, and so you can, you know, see that in the work, you know, but, but I kind of go between the two, you know, sometimes, usually like the actors just do their thing that's why they're there but in giving like a little acting help a little um uh, instruction help with the pacing i've done uh, premiere screenings a few times with like you know cast and crew but basically i'm uh, you know i figure let's get together the, the final product of the film basically what i'm concentrating on is let's get together the final cut of the film and put together a good two two and a half minute trailer and then just boom send it off to every distributor that i can possibly you know can send it out to. It's just like, that's basically what I'm concentrating on. Not really, you know, um, uh, you know, if people want to see, you know, and you can just, you know, with the, the internet, if, you know, if an actor wants to see a rough cut, I'll show, certainly show it to him. But basically I'm concentrating on how getting it to a distributor and just getting an interesting, you know, trailer that can get people, you know, excited. Uh, basically, well, since I've just had, you know, for the this distributors, with just a couple of distributors I'm working with, so I haven't really built up any super strong relationships, you know, I need to be making more films to get a, a lasting relationship going, you know, but um, uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's all, all you, basically what you have to, you know, I have a friend, he's a writer, and he's just, you know, you know, he was, um, uh, Facing, he had faced a lot of rejection. I said, well, and I told him, well, just, you know, keep submitting it, keep trying. All you need is one person who said yes. And, you know, there was a lot of people who said no to, you know, Cargo for whatever reason. People who came really close and, you know, one guy who said he liked and he was going to recommend it to his, um, uh, his, uh, his boss. And then she saw it and said, no, we're passing on this, you know. So, so all you really, all, I just kind of try to think to keep myself, you know, not from getting depressed about, you know, maybe being rejected, you know, by distributors is you just need one person to say yes to your film and then just to, just to get it out there. Usually I'm, it, it's, I have to get over the fact, even if it works, that it's never going to be as cool in my mind. You know, when I made my short film, Guillotine Guys, I figured this is, I pictured my mind just like being as cool as a Hong Kong, you know, Jean Wu action film. And you figure it's never going to be that. So that's basically the, the disappointment is if it not being as flawless and as perfect as I envisioned in my mind. It's just never that. That for me is the, the biggest, you know, problem. So I usually, you know, um, uh, that's what does it for me. And there's always, you know, like, uh, reminds me of that a bit from uh, A Beautiful Mind where Russell Crowe's character is trying to, is out and, you know, walking around in nature trying to find his original idea. So it's just like, you know, I, I'm sure there's just, you think that something hasn't been done before, or maybe it just, it has been done, but it's going to be done in, a, in an update format. You know, I mean, uh, Tarantino, I love Tarantino, but if his structure of how he structured all of his films like Reservoir Dogs, that was actually came up by a director named Jim Jarmusch and he did it with a film called Mystery Train. And Steve Buscemi, for who, you know, plays Mr. Pink, is actually in that. So people, you know, so Tarantino, who is great, Reservoir Dogs, I think it's a better film than, than Mystery Train. Mystery Train is more of an art film, but, you know, that was, you know, um, he basically... He basically popularized an idea that somebody else came up with. So maybe that's just, you know, an idea that's already been done but hasn't really been popularized yet. So, But just when you think you've seen it all, it's like, you know, you always see something, you know. Every couple, every year there's always a few groundbreaking films that come out and show you something different that you haven't seen before. Crazy things, crazy happenstance, crazy things happening on set. Yeah, there was one on, on cargo. We had this insane 
it was a really quiet neighborhood, but for some reason, right next to where we're staying, where we're shooting outside, my um, uh, producer's uh, cinematographer's you know, house, there was this insane dog named Precious or something like that, or some big mean dog with a, like a, it's really like kind of a feminine name. And the dog literally would not stop barking. And so basically I had to get some little device that would like, that only dogs can hear when they bark, it hurts their ears or something like that. But even after that, they became immune to it after a few days. And I eventually, the only way I could shut the dog up was I reached over the side of the, um, uh, the fence, you know, and just poured a glass of water on its head and that shut it up, you know, so I'd have to do that every once in a while. But this, but I cannot think this thing would bark constantly from, you know, morning till night. Just, I mean, how can an animal just have that energy to bark that much until it traumatized me in a way because when we were doing uh, the voiceovers with Elliot, there was some, um, uh, the sound guy, we were shooting, and he said, oh, wait, there's a dog in the background. We have to wait for it to calm down. I thought, oh, the dog's never going to calm down. Oh, wait, it's a different dog. So, yeah, so it, that's, it, that traumatizes just, the dog would, a dog would just not shut up. I just don't know how that dog could bark endlessly like that and just have the energy and just, you know, not drop dead from exhaustion. So, uh, yeah, that can be annoying. You might, sometimes you might think you'd have, have to, you know, replace them, but you just got to have to be, you know, patient with them and stuff like that. But luckily I haven't had that happen, you know, so for anything, anything too bad so far. It didn't really, it really wasn't an issue with, with uh, Cargo for most of the actors because it was all just voiceover. So script and right in front of them. We rewrapped filmmaking, uh, we rewrapped filming uh, on Cargo and when then later recorded the actors' uh, voices all one by one. And so it was just kind of like a bit of a puzzle piece trying to sync up. And Elliot was talking about this in the DVD commentary that it really seemed like that uh, all the actors, you know, were looking at uh, the lead actor, Ron Tonson, Anthony Peterson's character. Um, just, you know, so it was just really kind of like, you know, I mean, a, a hit and miss, just trying to get everything all lined up. But it was basically, you know, me just working with the actors one by one. I tried it, yeah, once from uh, from film, but I just was so stiff on it, you know. So I just, you know, I was really, really nervous. So I was just like very reserved, like doing the whole thing, like, you know, kind of like this. But I tried it, but, I'm, you know, you got to really love it to do it. So I tried it once and that was it for me. I did a little stage acting when I was a kid, so... Is okay, you know, but um, uh, but some a little bit, you know, but not for years though. Sure, you know, if somebody just you know that who's a good filmmaker, you know, offered me a role, so yeah, I'll just go out there and I'll try it, you know. So I just like go in there and maybe try to chew the scenery up, you know. So maybe, you know, I've, you've got to offer something like that. I've thought about it, but I haven't, you know, haven't done it. Maybe, maybe, you know, I think I could, you know, I try that, you know. I think I've I did try acting in a, f a film I made, but um, like I said, it was just the results were just not not good, so. Yeah, the thing about, um, I think I have advice for giving, you know, filmmakers is it's just like, try and be, you know, your best to be, you know, prolific, you know, just to make, you know, my problem with um, uh, Kubrick is they didn't make, say, not nearly enough films. I mean, they're great films, most of them, you know, but, um, uh, but Robert Rodriguez, I think, said one time that he was trying to um, uh, think, he says that filmmakers' problems is they don't make too little films, they don't make they don't make enough films, they're not prolific enough. He says that's one problem with filming. And, and Tarantino's the opposite, saying that he just is, he's very concerned saying, you know, every film he's make is gonna be his last film to make, you know, and he's always, you know, getting ready for retirement. I guess maybe he is after Once Upon a Time in, uh, in Hollywood. So we'll see what's up with him next. 
Yeah, do I like the camaraderie on on film sets? I do like it, but um, I think my favorite part of the process is actually having the process, having the film finished, having, you know, and, and screening people, you know, and they dig it, you know, distributors like it. That's for me is the most enjoyable process because, you know, there's there's fun there. They call it a screenplay, you know, so, but there's some play involved there. But basic for me, basically, I like to... Um, uh, have uh, the the favorite part is when it's done, when the work is done, and when you've got it polished and it's, you know all you know color coded, color color corrected, and everything, and it's just ready to go. That for me is the best part of the process when it's actually finished and it works.